This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. And today we're continuing in our series uh, called Theology of Sexuality. And uh, if you've not been a part of the last few weeks, I encourage you to catch up online. And uh, uh, today is probably the most difficult message um, that, that we've had so far. And, and that today I, I want to talk to you about how do we think about LGBTQ plus issues. And, and just a couple of things. First, I recognize that this is a sensitive topic. I recognize that, that this is not just something that, that we think about or read about or talk about, but, but depending on your experience, you, you may have a, a very close loved one wrestling with these issues, or you personally might be wrestling with these issues. And so I just want to ask you uh, just to hang in. Just ask God to open your heart and, and mind to receive whatever he might have for you. This is a sensitive topic and, and there's going to be a lot of content today. And so I want to challenge you, even though maybe we're all a little bit sleepy this morning, to, uh, to just love the Lord your God with your mind this morning. Love the Lord your God with your heart this morning. Ask him, say, say God, would you just speak to me? I mean, we all have predispositions to, to how we look and think about a va- many, many topics, and this one is certainly one. And, and so I want to do this today by, by, by answering five questions. Question one, uh, what would be the first thing that I would like to say to the LGBT plus community? And if I was only going to say one thing to the LGBT plus community, that, that would be just to say on, on behalf of, of the church historically and on behalf of Christians, I would just apologize we have done a terrible job historically at showing LGBTQ plus folks the love of Jesus. And if I was going to say one thing, if you're here today and, and identify as a homosexual um, or are wrestling with these things, uh, if you hear nothing else, I want you to hear this. You matter to God and he loves you and he has a plan for your life. And second, I would say that you matter to me and you matter to this church. And again, on behalf of the church historically, where we have failed miserably at loving well and revealing the love of Jesus well to this community, I want to apologize. We've messed this up in so many ways. I'm sorry that we focused more on your sin than on our own sin which is the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. Jesus, if you have your Bibles, go over to Matthew chapter seven. If you've been to the church a while, you might've heard this verse before, talking about how our focus should be on our own sin than the sin of others. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank? He's being funny here. It's like you have a little bit of that stuff that you have in your eye early in the morning when you kind of wake up, a little stuff's in your eye, and, and, and your friend's got a little bit of that in their eye, and, and the imagery here is you've got this giant tree trunk in your own eye. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust, your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, 
when all the time there is a plank in your eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I believe one reason so many Christians that, that uh, have um, seemingly taken delight in, in uh, pointing out the, uh, and, and speaking negatively against the homosexual community has, has been simply because that's not the sin they struggle with. And so while they might struggle with greed or gossip or pornography of a heterosexual nature or racism uh, or pride, they, 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 they would highlight the sin that they don't struggle with. And so Jesus is very, very clear that the sins we should be most concerned about are our own. But in our lack of love towards the LGBTQ community, we focused more on their sin than our own. It's the opposite of what Jesus teaches. And it's the opposite of what the Apostle Paul teaches. Jesus is clear. The sin that we should be most concerned with is our own. The sin we should be second most concerned with are, are those inside the church. Let me read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church at Corinth was every bit as messed up as any church that you've ever been a part of. And there was all sorts of things in that church that shouldn't have been there. And then, so Paul is pointing out their need to live a holy life. But then he's bringing a word of clarity. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he brings clarity. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And then here's the key verse. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So Jesus is clear. The sin that we should be most concerned with is ours personally. Paul is clear. The sin we should be second most concerned with is that sin inside the family of God. And so Paul says, what, is it, is it, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? So here's the principle. And here it is. This will help you a lot and not to get so mad in life. People that don't know and love and follow Jesus act like people that don't know and love and follow Jesus. So our expectation should not be that they're going to hold the same values, morals, and beliefs that we do. And so, it, but if the church, the people in the church who know and love and follow Jesus would act like people that know and love and follow Jesus, Paul says that would be great. So the sin that we should be most concerned with is our personal sin, Jesus says. The sin we should be second most concerned with is the sin we find inside the family of God and that, that, we, that we should be spurring one another on towards holiness. But our need for the rest, so Paul says, hey, when I said don't associate with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about lost people. He's like, you would have to move to a far, far, far away place by yourself. He says, change your expectations. Lost people will act like lost people. It would just be great if saved people acted like saved people. And, and so we have been guilty. We've not loved this community well by focusing more on their sin than on our own sin. I think an example of this 
is, is no matter what your, your views might be on, on gay marriage and, and whether or not it should be legal in this country, what is certainly true is that we, as the church of Jesus, would have been better served being hyper-focused on our own marriages reflecting Jesus than the legality of anyone else's. See, our instinct has been, let's focus more on their sin than on ours. And in that way, we have done an incredible disservice to the cause of Jesus. I'm sorry that many times we've led with condemnation when we should have led with compassion. So that's the first question. If I could say anything to the LGBTQ plus community, it would be, I'm sorry. Jesus loves you and we love you. Here's the second thing, second question. Why have Christians historically believed homosexual activity is a sin? So I'm gonna just brief, I'm gonna just quickly go through a lot of content. Hang in with me if you can. If the person next to you gets sleepy, just elbow them hard. There are six key passages in the scriptures, old and new, that speak specifically about homosexuality, homosexual activity. Um, There's many, many others that speak of sexual immorality in general. But these six passages, the two things we must know about these passages, one is homosexual activity is always referred to in the negative, and it's always referred to as a part of a longer list. It's never just focused on as this one sin or like it's the sin. It's always focused on in the context of, a, of many, many, many other sins. And so these six key passages, I'll share with you a handful of those. And we see three similar passages in Leviticus. One of them is just, it's very similar to these. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. We see three more similar passages um, in the book of Leviticus. And so some who would argue that the Bible is okay with homosexual activity would say a handful of objections to, to these passages. One is, hey, that's Leviticus. There's a lot of weird stuff in there. It doesn't count. Now, but the bottom line is the, the, these verses are right in the middle of prohibitions of, on rape, incest, bestiality, just regular adultery, and a bunch of stuff that we would agree the Bible is not for. Another argument would be to say that this is talking about something more akin to homosexual rape. Uh, but, when the, but what we see in the scripture is that argument is, is fallacious and that when we see in the scripture other places where, where heterosexual rape is being condemned, the only person that is to receive punishment is, is the perpetrator, not the victim. But here what we see is that both participants are, are to receive punishment. And so it's clear that, that this is not talking about a victimizing sort of thing in this verse here. Another argument would be that there's lots of stuff in the Levitical law that we ignore, like about clothes and food. And, and, that, and, and it's just important to understand that there's really three types of laws that we find in, in, in the Torah. We, we see what we, we would call ceremonial laws, laws related to 
to uh, um, worship and sacrifice and the purification rituals all associated with all of that. And then there would be laws that we would think of more akin to a, a national law as, as, these, uh, as, as Israel, the people of God in this context, were an actual nation. And then what we see is what you'd call moral law. Now, as, as New Testament Christians, as followers of Jesus, who aren't a part of the nation of Israel, or we don't have, have a temple, and we don't sacrifice because Jesus has fulfilled that sacrifice on our behalf, uh, we, we are not under these national laws, these ceremonial laws, but we, that we are under these moral laws. And a very simplified way to tell the difference is you won't see these ceremonial laws or these national laws reinforced in the New Testament. But these moral laws like do not steal and do not murder, do not commit adultery, these types of things we see reinforced in the New Testament. And so in this way, we can, ha we can have an understanding. And, and so what, what do we see in the New Testament? In, the, in 1 Corinthians 6, we've looked at this passage a couple times in this series. Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards. Again, what we see is this principle, is it's listed with a bunch of other sins that we are all guilty of, some of these at least. Nor slanderers, nor ever gone on Facebook and just said something really nasty about someone you disagree with, even if you don't know them, maybe they're a politician. That's called slander. It's in the same passage as this one. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And, and then we see Paul again in Romans 1. Now in Romans, uh, what, the beginning of the book of Romans, what the apostle Paul is doing is he's laying a framework of, 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 of preparing, showing us that, that our universal need for a savior. And so in Romans one, as he's leading into this, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way that men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, a few things. Some, some who would argue a different perspective would argue that Paul had, had, would have had no concept of homosexual relationships as we see today. The idea of a loving, consensual, committed, monogamous type of relationship. They would say, well, really what he's simply against is abusive homosexual relationships or man-boy love or male prostitution. But more and more research about the ancient world shows this to be patently false. There were indeed loving, long, there were indeed long-term monogamous consenting homosexual relationships in the ancient world. And we see these referenced in Roman literature. And, and, and the words Paul uses, this, this, um, the word we translate, men who have sex with men, malakoi, or, or, um, and then, and then arsenikoitai, sex between males. It's been a number of years since my Greek classes. I never focused on these words in those studies. Be weird if I did, probably. But what we see is that every, every major Greek writer uh, and philosopher uses these same words to refer exclusively to homosexual 
relationships. Historian Thomas Hubbard, who's not a Christian, wrote the definitive work on homosexuality in the ancient world called Homosexuality in Ancient Greece and Rome. And he shows that homosexuality existed in a wide variety of forms in the Greek and Roman world, including committed same-sex partners. And they were always referred to by the terms that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6. Similarly, some would argue that, that Paul is speaking against uh, uh, against abusive pederasty, uh, abusive man-boy relationships, an older man taking advantage of a younger man. And if that were the case, there, there were different words to, to speak about that. Now, some would argue that about how the church was on the wrong side of issues of slavery and, and mistreatment of women. And then they would say, oh, and Jesus never talked about these things, uh, these things of, of issues related to, related to homosexuality. And a couple of things. The, it is true that in, that in many ways, many Christians as well as people of other religions and no religion around the world were, were many times on the wrong side of issues related to, to slavery and issues related to repressing women. But what we do see is, is a couple of things. One thing is we do see that it was Christians Men like William Wilberforce and, and others that, that, that led the, the way to, to the ending of the slave trade. And we do see that everywhere that the gospel has taken root, it has ultimately led to an improvement of conditions for women. But what we see is that, is that the, as we see these things in the Bible, issues of slavery and, and women being treated in, in ways that, that are inappropriate, it, it's never it's never commended. It's never encouraged. And it only happens once sin comes into the world. But what we see about what we see in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking about marriage. And Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce. And what Jesus does, whenever and multiple times, we see Jesus going back to the creation narrative. And, and so Jesus, when he's asked about marriage and he's asked about divorce, he says, we, we learn the pattern for these things from the, the, the created order, from, from how God instituted these things. And so we see Matthew 19, verse three, some Pharisees, these people that should have known the law backwards and forwards, came to him and to test him. They said, is it lawful for a man to... Divorce his wife for any and every reason. Haven't you read, he replied, and Jesus making fun of these guys whose whole job was to have the, the law memorized. Jesus is like, well, have you ever read this part at the very beginning? He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so what we see is that Jesus repeatedly affirmed this created order and the Mosaic law that, that declared that sex to be permissible only between a man and a woman in covenant marriage. Anything that deviates from that would be called sexual immorality. It's this Greek word, porneia. We see Jesus was speaking about this in Mark 7, verse 21. Here's an interesting fact. Many scholars who would advocate for the idea that, that, that homosexual activity is not sinful, many of these scholars are, are intellectually honest enough to recognize that you can't argue this from Scripture. Emory University scholar Luke Timothy 
Johnson, a renowned scholar, says this. Now, this guy holds to a belief that, that, that he doesn't believe that homosexual activity is sinful. But here's what he says. He says, I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. He continues, I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed it, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created. So this renowned New Testament scholar who believes that homosexual activity is not sinful says, hey, the Bible does say it's sinful. And there's no legitimate way to argue that it doesn't. So what he said, and so really it comes down to week one, we talked about as we address these issues of sexuality, a, a, a root question that we have to ask is where is my authority found? And, and, and on this and many other questions in our lives, we have to ask ourselves: is this, is our ultimate authority going to be the clear reading of scripture or is our ultimate authority going to be our own experience and understanding? Put another way, are we going to judge the scripture by our experience or are we going to judge our experiences through the lens of scripture? So to answer the question, well, what does the Bible say about homosexual activity? It's clear, it's, it is a sin and it is clear, it is not the sin. It is listed every single time as a part of a larger list of sins. Here's the third question. The questions just keep getting harder. Are gay people born that way? The bottom line is, I don't know. Nobody knows. I will quote from the American Psychological Association. It says this. What causes a person to have a particular sexual orientation? Here's what they say. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reason that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. That's many words to say, we're not sure. Now listen, I want you to know, I fully embrace the idea that, that some people are born with a strong same-sex attraction predisposition. I fully embrace the idea that, that some people, for as long as they can remember, have been attracted to the same sex. Um, the clear teaching of scripture is this. We, our first parents, were created perfect and without sin. God created things and he says, this is good. This seems to have lasted about 30 minutes. 
before our first parents chose to sin. At that moment, everything in creation that had been declared good and everything about the man and the woman, woman which had been created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, instantly became a mix of good and fallen, beautiful and broken. This accounts for everything in nature. This, is, this, is, this accounts for everything about our bodies, our minds, our sexuality, and our desires. We are this mix, created good in the image of God, and that's not all gone. Yet at the same time, deeply affected by, by what we would call the fall and sin entered in the, the world, and with that death and everything that was made perfect, no longer perfect, where death entered into the world and disease entered into the world and hurt feelings entered into the world, and all of these things entered into the world, all of us straight and gay, all of us find ourselves this mix of, of created in the image of God and at the same time deeply fallen and sinful, this mix of, of beautiful and broken. That is all of us. Every one of us have predispositions to certain desires and behaviors. And we... And so all of us have, 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 these, have, have predispositions to certain desires and behaviors, and we, with the assistance of a multitude of forces, internal and external, all decide that some are to be embraced and given into, and some are to be resisted. Sometimes we are assisted by the threat of prison. It's like, well, if I do that... If I give into that impulse where this person made me so angry and my impulse is to punch them, my day is going to change. And so we resist some of these. Tim Keller gives a, a, I believe we must not underestimate the influence of culture, the place that we live and, and our, the people that we're surrounded by and the common narratives and, uh, of, of the culture and media um, help us process this. Tim Keller gives us this, I believe, incredible example to demonstrate how our sexual feelings and desires are influenced by social forces. He says, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is same-sex attraction. To that he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He will look at the aggression and think, this is not who I want to be, and will seek deliverance and therapy and anger management programs. He will look at his sexual desire, however, and conclude, that is who I am. Keller concludes, and where did our Anglo-Saxon warrior and our Manhattan man get their grids from their cultures? 
their communities, their heroic stories. They are filtering their feelings, jettisoning some and embracing others. They are choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them they may be. Here's the fourth question. I am same-sex attracted and want to faithfully follow the way of Jesus. What does that look like? And I think it's incredibly important that, that, that we understand that for all of us, for every, Jesus could not have been clearer that to faithfully follow him will be difficult and costly for all of us. Jesus, Luke 9. Terrible marketing here by Jesus. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What Jesus here is saying is that if you want to follow me, it's going to be costly and there's going to be things that you desire that you're going to have to deny. Now that's for every single person who wants to follow Jesus. And he says, and at, at times, it, and he says, and take up your cross. It's this imagery of just fully, full, fully giving yourself. And, and, and so, but we have to understand that this is not a, a scripture that was written for people who are same-sex attracted or identify as gay who, who want to follow Jesus. This was written for every person who wants to follow Jesus. And so that this expectation that, that, that following Jesus is going to be difficult and costly. And so faithfully following Jesus for someone with same-sex attraction is going to look different for some than for others. There are some people who experience something maybe described as a miracle, who, who, who through, through prayer and time and therapy and, and come, come to a spot where, where they are able to, to, to thrive in, in, a, in a somewhat normative heterosexual marriage. A friend of mine, his, his worship pastor, uh, who was uh, kind of well-known in the early 90s, this guy, Dennis Jernigan, who, 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 initi- who was living a gay lifestyle. And then ultimately felt like God enabled him to, to enter into a heterosexual marriage. And, and now he's married and got a bunch of kids and has been so for, for decades. Now, I would love to tell you that that's how it usually works. That's not how it usually works. But sometimes, sometimes that, that sort of thing does happen. What, what we're seeing more of is, is uh, we're, we're seeing people that, that come to a spot where where they desire to faithfully follow Jesus, and, and, and though they still find themselves uh, meaningfully same-sex attracted, may, don't want to go through life alone, want, want to ha- have companionship and friendship. I was talking to a psychologist friend the other day from Louisiana, and he was sharing with me how he's seeing this, this increase in Christians who are same-sex attracted, who end up in heterosexual marriages after being incredibly honest about their struggles and and the relationship is less sexual in nature than we think of marriage i want you to understand that 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 our emphasis on romance falling in love and getting married and and having steamy hot sex for 60 years this is a fairly modern invented invention and fantasy for all of human history, 
Marriage was more about friendship and partnership and building a life together and building and 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 and, and, and building businesses together and and, and uh, families being in alliance. And anyway. And so, but we see sometimes that these relationships mostly about friendship and companionship and sharing your life with someone. There are others who, who while continuing to have same-sex attraction, choose to honor God by living a life of celibacy unto the Lord. And some people would say, so as a gay Christian, my options are a fairly uncommon borderline miraculous change where I can fully embrace a somewhat traditional heterosexual marriage or, or a non-traditional marriage with less romance or celibacy. And then some would say, isn't that cruel to ask that? And here it is. It's only cruel if we do not believe it is possible to live a meaningful life apart from sex. And as I've shared from week one, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Mother Teresa, some of the most meaningful lives ever lived. Uh, Deborah Hirsch, who had previously lived a, a lesbian lifestyle, ended up marrying a pastor. She says this. Now she does, has a ministry to, to Christians with same-sex attraction, many of them seeking to live lives of celibacy. She says this, and she said, I'm thankful that Jesus was a single man, because in him we find the redemption of celibacy and therefore singleness. And as many of my dear friends, both gay and straight, are walking the celibate path, this gives them a deeper insight in, and, and appreciation of what Jesus experienced. Secondly, it's only cruel, and you must, if you get nothing else, those of you with a heterosexual orientation that are following Jesus, I want you to get this. It's only cruel if, if all Christians no matter our orientation, preference, or struggles, do not seek to live a life of holiness. We can't ask our, our, our brothers and sisters with same-sex attraction to live a life of holiness if we're not asking the same of our heterosexual brothers and sisters. We, we, we cannot, it's that we're all called to live a life of holiness, counting it a privilege to lay aside anything in this very short life. If straight Christians are not living sacrificial lives of holiness, it is cruel and hypocritical to ask anyone else to do it. So the message of take up your cross and deny yourself, it's not a message primarily to homosexual followers of Jesus. It's a message to followers of Jesus. It's only cruel to ask someone to be willing to lay aside their, their sexual desires of whatever kind if we do not believe that obeying God always ultimately leads to our flourishing. Sam Alberry, an Anglican minister from Great Britain, who has some, if you, has some great stuff on YouTube, by the way. He recently shared about his struggle with same-sex attraction. This is so good. He says this. He says, homosexuality is an issue I have grappled with my entire Christian life. There have been all sorts of ups and downs, but this battle is not devoid of blessings as Paul discovered with his own unyielding thorn in the flesh, struggling with sexuality has been an opportunity to experience more of God's grace rather than less. 
But over the last couple of years, I've felt increasingly concerned when it comes to our gay friends and family members. Many of us Bible-believing Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We are not always convinced it really is good news for gay people. We're not always sure we can really expect them to live by what the Bible says. It is simply not possible to argue for gay relationships from the Bible. God's word is, in fact, clear. The Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity outside of man-woman marriage. As someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. There have been times of acute temptation and longing, times when I have been in love. But I've learned that what we give up, get this, whether you're heterosexual or same-sex attracted, but get this, I've learned that what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship that God has given me with many brothers and sisters, the opportunities of singleness, the privilege of a wide-ranging ministry in the community of a wonderful church family, but greater than any of these things is the opportunity to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ. My main point is this, the moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, get this, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. But Jesus is always worth it. And that's the call of Jesus to the, somebody wants to clap and you can if you need to. And, uh, but that's the call of Jesus to all of us. Last point. How should I treat my son, my niece, my friend, my coworker who is gay? When I was 19 years old, I, I began attending a church called Metro Church. The pastor there was a guy named Scott Camp. He was my pastor until I became the, until I started a church uh, six years later. I was his youth pastor. He was a mentor of mine. He's preached here. Now he's a missionary in Africa, seeing thousands and thousands of people come to faith. When you give to Life Church, we're able to support him and other missionaries like him. I want you to check out this video from Pastor Scott. When our oldest son, Dylan, was 13 years old, he asked to meet with Gina and I. And so I'll never forget, we went to Starbucks and uh, Dylan is by far the most intelligent of our children and has always uh, just been special and unique in many, many different ways. But uh, the first announcement that he made to us was that he was not a Christian. Dylan had been baptized when he was in third grade or fourth grade, nine or 10 years old. Uh, and I did everything that I knew to do as both his pastor and his dad to nurture his faith. But I could tell even in the aftermath of his baptism that he wasn't really interested in spiritual things. He had friends at the church, but that was really the extent. So when he met with us and said that he was not a Christian and that Jesus Christ, if he existed at all, was merely a man, a human being, another religious leader, but that it didn't make any sense to him that God could somehow come in human flesh. Uh, I was a professor of apologetics at a university at the time. Um, I looked at Gina and I saw tears beginning to form in her eyes and trickle down her cheeks when he said, secondly, I want you to know that I'm gay. 
and that I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. He's 13 years old at the time and that I'm going to pursue who I am. And, and when he told me that, I, I have to be honest with you, all I can do is tell you our story. And I don't want to project that on any folks that might be struggling with these same issues. All I can tell you is that I really wasn't surprised. And so I reached across the table and I embraced my son. And I said, Dylan, I want you to know two things. Number one, I'm your dad and I'll always be your dad and I'll always love you. And that never changes. And secondly, I'm concerned because I believe the path that you're taking and the choice that you're making as such a young guy is going to bring a lot of pain and a lot of hurt in your life. But I'll always be here. And by that time, my wife composed herself and we all hugged each other and Dylan hugged us back. And over the next uh, seven or eight years, it was really, really heartbreaking as I saw my son uh, begin to take a downward spiral. He's a brilliant young man. He won a scholarship to Columbia University in journalism. Um, so his grades and those kinds of things were never a, an issue, but I began to see a hardening of his heart toward the things of God. We never imposed upon our children the burden of being pastor's kids. We never, never, never imposed that. And we didn't allow the church to impose that. But I did see my son completely losing interest in church. Now we all went to church every Sunday, but then after a while, I was on the road full time by the time Dylan was 15. And it was a real struggle. My son began to uh, use drugs. Um, he began to run with a crowd of people that I knew was not healthy. And I lovingly tried to speak into his life, be very honest, very frank. At times I probably lost my cool. But by the grace of God, we never closed the door to our son emotionally. And we just prayed for him and loved him and spoke truth into his life. But he was arrested the first time and charged with uh, minor drug possession, a misdemeanor. And I went and got him out of jail. He had been arrested at a park. And Dylan was unrepentant. He just said, it's not that big of a deal, Dad. Everybody my age smokes dope. And of course, I was a drug addict by the time I was Dylan's age. And I knew where all of this gateway drug marijuana leads eventually. And it, it led that way for Dylan. Within weeks of that arrest, he was arrested a second time. And this time when he called me from the jail and said, Dad, can you come get me? The Holy Spirit said to me, leave him in there because I'm working in his heart. It was a very difficult thing to do. And uh, after a few days, he called and he got into a program that got him released. And he said, Dad, could you pick me up? 
So we swung by and picked up Dylan and we went to one of our famous restaurants, our favorite restaurants and Dylan didn't say a word. He's very stoic and Dylan is not an emotional kind of guy, but I did look over and I saw tears in his eyes. We pulled into the restaurant and got our table and he began to sob and shake in the middle of this crowded restaurant that we frequented quite often and he just began to wail, I'm so lost, I'm so lost. And he said, Dad, I've been such a fool. And I thought I was smarter than you and Mom, and I thought I knew everything and you knew nothing. And then he said, Dad, I'm so lost. I need Jesus in my life. Dylan was born again that day. And at, that was four or five years ago now, and his life has changed. He's celibate. He's living for Christ. He's going to church. He's working. He's in New York now. And what I want to say to you parents, if you're struggling with this, is don't ever close the door on the relationship. Keep loving your child. I look back at some of the things I'm so glad I never called my son names. I never said, you're not my son anymore. I never said, God doesn't love you anymore. Keep the door open. Keep loving your child. I just know that if God saved me and God saved some of you who are watching, God can save anybody. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. It's just sin like every other sin. And God loves sinners. Thank God he loved us. Thank God he loved Dylan. And about four or five years ago, we got a new son. He's growing up. He's maturing. And in his own way, he's following the path that the Lord has put in front of him. I hope this is helpful to you. God bless you. Thank you for watching this video. And listen, every story will be different, different relationships. God's, God works differently in different people's lives, and people respond differently to God's work in their lives. But the bottom line is this. We can't call ourselves Christians if we do not excel at loving people that, that we disagree with. We, we just can't. It's that the, Jesus went as far as to say, love your enemies. These people aren't our enemies. We just might have, have a, a, a different perspective on sexual ethics than they might, but they're not our enemies at all. But Jesus said, love your enemies. So he certainly wants us to thrive at loving those that we might see some things differently than. Jesus was always a balance. How do we treat those? in our lives, because we've all, we've all got those folks. We were all going to have people in our lives wrestling with these things. Jesus was always this beautiful balance of truth and love, holiness and grace. He at the same time taught the highest sexual ethic the world has ever seen. He said, it's not, not enough not to actually commit adultery. He says, I'm, I'm concerned about your heart. He took it to whole new levels for his followers. He taught the highest sexual ethic the world has ever seen and was known as a friend of who was considered the, the, the worst of all the sinners. We see this with the woman caught in adultery where, where Jesus says, hey, neither do I condemn you. R radical grace and acceptance and then at the same time, a call to holiness. Now go and sin no more. Jesus was always this beautiful balance of grace and truth, holiness and mercy. And nowhere is this balance seen more clearly than in the cross, where the sense of Jesus as a holy judge that took sin so seriously that there must be a penalty. 
Yet at the same time, his mercy and love that says, I will take the penalty upon myself. It's this balance we see over and over and over again with Jesus. Truth and grace, holiness and mercy and love. So how do we treat people with these same-sex attraction? Someone living out same-sex activity for for the person who is not a follower of Jesus. Our role is simply to love them and point them to Jesus just like you would anybody else that does not know Jesus. Their biggest issue is not who they're having sex with. It is that they need to experience the love of Jesus for the person who is a follower of Jesus. Our role is simply, our our role is simply to love, to come alongside them in Christian community and encourage them towards growing in Jesus more, which leads to loving Jesus more, which leads to obeying Jesus more in every area of life, speaking the truth in love to one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, just like we would any Christian struggling with any area, whether that be pride or greed or gossip or pornography or or heterosexual adultery, that, that just like we would any other Christian would come alongside in Christian community speaking the truth in love and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Let me pray for you. So Father, Lord, I know that there's in this room, this people that for this, this is not theory. This is biography stuff. And Lord, I pray for those who might say that for their whole life, they've only felt attracted to the same sex. And maybe they've acted on that, on that desire. Maybe they haven't. God, I, I pray for those that they would leave here with a, a tremendous, overwhelming sense that you love them and that they matter to you and that they matter to this church. Lord, I know there's folks that have very close loved ones that this has been an incredibly challenging issue. How to, how, to, how, how, to, how to balance grace and truth and all of these things. And I know that one message isn't gonna make that suddenly simple. And so God, I pray that you'd just help all of us. Lord, I'll help all of us to reflect your heart towards all people. Jesus, who who taught the highest sexual ethic the world has ever seen and was known as a friend of sinners. God, would you help us to be like him on these issues? It's in his name we pray. Amen.